0: Marketing professor, University of Michigan Dearborn, brand love expert. I love my wedding ring, but it's because it connects me to my wife. So I'm the first person, the ring is the thing, and she's the second person in the person, thing, person, chain that 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 object occupies. Our brain is actually hardwired not to form relationships with things we you know, our brain is wired up to form relationships with people, but our brain also has a tendency to mistake things for people. So it doesn't take much. If an object looks like it has a face on it, or you speak to your phone and Siri speaks back to you, mm-hmm. all these sorts of cues, they're enough to activate in your brain some of the mm-hmm. thought processes and mechanisms that are normally reserved for people. There's a correlation between how many friends people have and how much they love their phone. So the more friends you have, the more people it connects you to and the more you love that phone. Mm -hmm. And then the third is they are now often anthropomorphic because you speak to them and they speak back to you. So many people tell Siri, Siri, I love you, that Apple has had to come up with a bunch of different responses to that, my favorite one being, "Oh, I bet you say that to all the Apple products."
1: <laughs> okay. As for your wife, your most often used phrase, "Honey," that's perfect. Hey, hey, hey nice. Hello, fellows. Welcome to the next episode of Jagged with Jasravi. Subscribe to my channel for conversations at the edge with thought leaders from the branding, marketing, and the business world. Conversations that ignite new ideas. Ideas with rough and sharp edges. Hi, Aaron. So nice to have you on my show.
0: Just Ravi, it's a pleasure to be here.
1: Okay, Aaron, if I requested you to tweet your profile, what would you say?
0: Marketing professor, University of Michigan, Dearborn, brand love expert. That would be oh. it.
1: <laughs> Okay. So, so although you said brand love uh, expert, Aaron, mm-hmm. I first want to know, how did you get into, like you say, non-personal love? Because this is a very unique uh area for a marketing professor and a brand love expert
0: yeah um and the story is not uh, just how i got into this it's how this came to be because i actually did the initial work i wrote the first paper with barbara carroll that used the phrase brand love and before that i did the first major research uh, on this topic although We weren't using the term brand love, or I wasn't using the term brand love that early. It was still the same basic thing. Uh, So you got to get in your way back machine to the 1990s. And I am in a PhD program at Northwestern University's Kellogg uh, Business School. And I've taken a seminar with the well-known professor, Philip Kotler. And he is a big marketing proponent and explaining how marketing is about, like, everything is marketing. And in fact, a lot of things we take for granted now, that there is nonprofit marketing, that religious organizations market themselves when they try and get new adherents, uh, that healthcare, you know, needs marketing, et cetera. All of these ideas were really new ideas that he had put forward at some time, and he was explaining why even dating, even dating, if you're dating somebody, then you're marketing yourself to them and they're marketing themselves to you, etc. Uh, well, I was single at the time. And while marketing was interesting, dating was much, much more interesting than marketing. And uh, so I talked to him about this and he put me in touch with the professor, Mara Edelman, who had actually collected data on a dating service. And this was when dating services were just getting to be a thing in America. Of course, in Indian culture, the matchmaker has a prominent place for a very long time, but in American culture, no. And they were just starting to, to get move forward with these sorts of things at a, at a mass level. So myself and Mara Edelman, uh, we did a series of five major papers looking at different aspects of dating and dating services and uh, how they related to marketing and economics. And those became we became for a period of time the world's leading experts on dating services, which was not a big brag because we were also the world's least under you know least used experts on dating services because we were the only. Experts on dating services, so you you could put us at the top or the bottom. Nobody else was doing that, Uh, and I ended up on the Oprah Winfrey Show. It was a lot of fun, but when I needed to write something for my dissertation, I needed something that a top business school would look at and take me seriously. And if I was the dating services guy, that was not going to happen. On the other hand, I had at that point spent two years really reading in depth on the psychology of love because of all the dating service work. And so I thought, well, how can I take, you know, I don't want to throw out two years of intensive research. How do I take this and apply it to marketing in some other way? And I thought, well, all right, you know, people use the word love all the time. And they say they love this, they love that. Uh, and people, I wasn't by any means the first person to notice that, like lots of people had talked about that. And people had talked about consumers who are really, really involved with a certain product. I wasn't the first person to notice that either. Uh, but I just had this idea, okay, what if we took the psychology of love seriously and applied what we know about love in interpersonal relationships to see if it could help us understand people's love of brands or products um, or services. Mm -hmm. And the way I initially did the research was I didn't want to bias the people that I was talking to. So I just said, well, tell me about anything. It can be anything that isn't a person. And I figured if they loved a brand, it would come up. They'd tell me about that. Uh, And sometimes they did. And sometimes they loved brands and sometimes they loved products. And some people loved Things they made themselves and some people didn't love anything. And I you know, got a whole variety of res- responses there. Mm. But that's sort of the origin of it. Uh, that was a while ago. And, and that work turned into uh, the first work on this topic, as well as you know the first papers on brand love in, in particular. I have always felt that it's important to take kind of a balanced approach where you you got to know the psychology of love, interpersonal love, really well and be very well-versed in how that works. But you can't just assume that that's going to work when you apply something to a brand. You've got to go in with very open eyes and see when people talk about products or brands, uh, does that apply? And if so, how? Or does it apply in a different way? You know, or you know, something
1: modified in the process. Okay, this is very fascinating, and we'll come to this, Aaron, in terms of how when love gets applied on brands, how is it different? How does it work? But before that, mm-hmm. you know, the, the key question uh when we are delving into this topic of people mm-hmm. loving things, yeah, you know why is it so often people feel intense passion for objects, you know, why does this happen and what does it tell us about our society and ourselves
0: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: and very interestingly like you mentioned India, I mean this this whole thing of uh, looking at it as materialism, you know, like Mm -hmm. love for objects is materialism and spirituality is you know, spirit, not the form. So, you know, how does that work? So take us through this understanding.
0: Amazing questions. I love the bit about the spirituality and materialism. Um, Let's put that one on hold for a minute and definitely come back to it. We kind of of both remember not to let that one go. Uh, But let me start with why do people love so many things? And actually, it is true that the things we love play a very important role in our life because we love them and we make them a central part of our life. If we if we're able to. You know, one of the things that makes a good life is you can take the things you love to do and the things you love to be around and the experiences you love to have. If you can build that into the world in which you live all the time, that's going to make your life richer and, and better. If you think about all the stuff we see every day from, you walk out on the street, all the houses, all the cars, all the trees, walk down the street, all the stuff in the stores, all the advertisements. And then you ask yourself, well, how much of that do you love? You probably love one in a million or less, you know, of those things that are out there. So it's an interesting, not contradiction, but it's an interesting juxtaposition that the things we love can be prevalent in our own life, but they're actually rare in the grand scheme of things When you compare to all the things that are out there. So that raises the question, all right, how did you, out of, out of a million things, why this one? One of the studies that I've done that I found particularly interesting just at a descriptive level is a couple of years ago uh, I asked 700 some people just to name three brands that they love, if there are any, right up to three. And I got an astonishingly long list. So, Apple was the most frequently mentioned, the most loved brand. 156 people loved Apple. Uh, Samsung, Nike, a couple others had a lot of people. But if you define a brand as highly loved if if 10 or more people love that brand. So that's uh, not that high of a hurdle. it got 700 people, right? You're only looking for 10 to say they love that brand. For every brand that was mentioned by 10 or more people, there were 250 brands that were mentioned by just one or two people usually just one person. So what you get is this incredible long tail diagram with just like a few super popular brands like Apple, Nike, Samsung, whatever. And then this huge, enormous list of brands that are loved by just one person or maybe two in some cases. And what that tells me is that almost any brand, there's probably some small group of people out there that love it. I mean, I was only talking to 700 people, right? So if you expand this over the population, there's probably a small group of people that love just about anything, but very few brands have figured out how to get beyond that. You're not going to, you're not going to Build a you know build a brand on on just that how to expand that and make it a larger thing so for most brands it's possible you know it's possible for people to love that brand because people do but you also know you're not doing whatever it takes to get get a lot of people to love that brand you're not doing that either and it tells me to get back to that original question okay so you've got like a, you know a million different things you see every day your eyes glance across every day how come this one stands out. Lesson number one, the one that stands out is different for different people. There are a few things that lots of people go into, but for many people, it's different for different people. And a lot of the reason it's so unique um, is that first, they reflect our sense of identity and and different people have a different sense of identity. Second of all, they reflect our relationships with other people. And often that's some sort of a odd coincidental experience. Like, oh my, she's always been my favorite aunt, and she gave me this as a present, and now I love that brand because it's sort of connected with her in my mind. Well, it happens to be, you know, your aunt could have given you a different brand or different people, different aunt or whatever. So there's sort of a, a a randomness component to some of it that's going on. And then these are things that people see as really excellent. And here, I think, is one of the the things that does systematically separate some companies from others is that when people love a product or a brand or an object that isn't a product or a brand, they love their favorite piece of fruit. I know a lot of people love mangoes. I love mangoes. We love mangoes because they're awesome. They're just great, you know. They're just they're, they're amazing that this thing just exists there in nature. So there's a sense of this being fabulous, and you can think about people's love for a piece of fruit or a brand or a product as starting with this is fabulous, but then adding more because there's a lot of fabulous things that we don't love. I mean, I like Mercedes cars. Somebody gave me a Mercedes car, I'd be very, very happy to have one. Uh, and I think that they are absolutely excellent cars. Absolutely. But I don't love Mercedes cars. I don't own one. Didn't buy one. Bought an Audi. Huh? Why don't I love them, even though I think they're fabulous cars? Well, there's a lot to that. I'm not, you know, that would take a whole show by itself. I'm not going to waste your, your listeners' time with that. But the point is, we all have things that we think are great and don't love. So the interesting point comes in okay yeah if you want people to love your brand or your products it's got to be great but what else needs to happen after that to to make it special to them
1: right so how can companies get people to love their brands is a question that follows like you said self identity relationships with other people which kind of gives it the context of an emotion uh, and yes. what it evokes in them. And of course, they have to be fabulous uh, yeah. in, in the consumer's perception of howsoever Correct. they define. So, how can companies? Because, uh, Aaron, would you agree? Everybody wants this. Every company wants this. Love my brand. Because once the love happens, you're not just going to prefer it, you're not just going to have a long relationship with it, you'll also be forgiving. You'll also, yes. you know, have a very different lens uh, for evaluating.
0: Yes, so. you'll be forgiving. And one more to throw in there, um, you'll go on social media, or if you know, however you communicate with other people, and you'll just talk all about it. You, know, you ask a grandparent to tell you about their grandkids and show you pictures, and you'll be there until you know, until you're old enough to be a grandparent. So, people love to talk about the things or the people that they love. They can go on forever. And if you say something bad, like Apple, you go online and you say something bad about Apple, you will be deluged with people who love Apple who are there to defend that brand because we defend the things that we love as well. So, I've done a fair amount of research with two colleagues from the Ross School of Business, also at the University of Michigan, uh, Rajiv Batra and Rick Bogosi, And we have looked at the ability of brand love to predict various things that businesses are interested in, repeat purchase, willingness to pay a price premium, likelihood of going on the internet and blabbing positively about this brand and, you know, Uh, and a sense of having a strong relationship with the brand. And the ability of brand love to predict this stuff is astonishingly high, higher than anything I've ever seen. And and there was a a recent paper by Komatov, another academic, and I I mentioned this because it was in the top journal in this area and he's not me. So uh, it wasn't me tooting my own horn here, but uh, he actually was a proponent of a slightly different way of understanding things. And he did a comparison of all the main uh, ways that people might look at predictors of brand loyalty and determined that brand love did better than, you know, any of the other ones. So it's, it's a very powerful. uh, Mechanism there. How do you get it to happen? Like what is that something more? There are. Three ways that that happens. And each one has a million subparts. Love is a many-splendored thing. Anyone who's been in love knows love is complicated, so we'll, we'll get into it. But just to give you a brief overview, uh, the first, as I said, is you connect it to your sense of identity. You think it reflects who you are in some positive way. I mean, there are things that are part of our identity, but we're ashamed of them. They're negative. We don't love those. But something is part of your identity in a strongly positive way. You really want it to be part of your identity. And from a marketing perspective, how do you do that? Um, it helps if your product is used publicly, if other people see the person use it. Uh, it helps if it's a product that is used in or on the body, like clothing or food or um, shampoo that people you know rub into their hair, that kind of thing and it helps a lot if you connects to people's deeper values so it's not just laundry detergent um i don't know if you're familiar with this campaign i think it was a campaign in in india um and i think it was for Ariel. i may be wrong about that but it's a it's a older man writing a letter to his daughter about how he always thought you're you're nodding. You know this one, right? Share
1: the load. Share the load. Share the
0: load. Share yeah, the load. Yeah,
1: yeah. You're,
0: what a yeah. great campaign! Wow, wow. I show that to my students in America, and they're always at the end of the ad. Like some people are, like drawing tears from their eyes, mm-hmm. and everyone's jaws drop down to their desk.
1: Yeah. So
0: that ad takes something incredibly mundane, laundry detergent, mm-hmm. and connects it to intimate values and parts of people's life that they feel is just very personal, right? And it's when you get the connection that feels personal that people see that brand as part of their person, part of their own identity. Mm -hmm. So that's one. Second, I mentioned briefly is social relationships. There's a great consumer researcher uh, generation uh, ahead of me named Russell Belk, and he has this wonderful quote where he says, if you talk to someone about a, a product or a brand that's really important to them, not something that's trivial in life, but something that's important to them, when you start talking to them, it looks like it's a person-thing relationship. So it's them and the brand, as if the brand was another person and they were having this dyadic relationship. But what you always find out when you press further is that the relationship is person, thing, person. And what he means by that, simple example, uh, my wedding ring. I love my wedding ring, but it's because it connects me to my wife. So I'm the first Mm -hmm. person, the ring is the thing, and she's the second person Mm -hmm. in the person, thing, person, chain that 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 object occupies. Mm -hmm. And the brands that we love are products to a staggering, surprising extent, turn out over and over again to have these kinds of qualities to them. Uh, and that's something that, at first, I thought, well, that's interesting, but how could that be relevant to marketing? I mean, because most of the time, it's, you know, this connects me to my brother or my best friend from high school or what have you. right? How can you use that? It turns out you can. Um, Foster, you're not necessarily fostering that connection for everybody, but in advertising, if people experience vicariously somebody else who has that connection to somebody else in the brand, that sort of warms them up and, and makes that more visible. So there's, there's ways of connecting there. Uh, and then the third one that we haven't touched on yet is anthropomorphism. And that is a little bit different because... Mm-hmm. Unlike the person, thing, person, that actually is person, thing. And generally, people don't form relationships with things, with products, brands, or other kinds of objects. Our brain is actually hardwired not to form relationships with things. We're, you know, Our brain is wired up to form relationships with people. But our brain also has a tendency to mistake things for people. So it doesn't take much. If an object looks like it has a face on it or you speak to your phone and Siri speaks back to you, mm-hmm. all these sorts of cues, they're enough to activate in your brain some of the mm-hmm. thought processes and mechanisms that are normally reserved for people. And, and so the brain will uh, you know, treat the object in some ways like a person Obviously, it's not completely like a person. You know it's not a person. You don't behave to it exactly like a person. But at a non-conscious level, some of these processes will be activated. uh, And that can create the sense of of relationship. And so to close here, what's the takeaway? Well, the takeaway is your brain wants to form relationships with people, not objects. And it forms relationships with objects. Either through anthropomorphism, it thinks it's a person, so it's treat, it looks like a person, it's treating it like a person through these person thing person relationships, people connectors, where the relationship is really with the other human being, and the Ooh. brand of the apartheid gets swept along, taken along, becomes part of that, Ooh. or it becomes part of yourself. You're a person, and so it's creating this. So this relationship, you know, it, it's part of this human uh, experience so there's always when you get real love there's always a kind of a person or pseudo person involved
1: wow that's amazing and when you were saying that uh, an object gets the face uh, like for example i think you've talked about cars cars have given the uh, front to look like a human face yeah so so that kind of and 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 uh, you know, mobile phones are really benefiting from Alexa and Siri of the world. Yep.
0: Yeah. <laughs> people, mobile phones are interesting because
1: they fill all
0: three of these kinds of uh, connections. So you store all kinds of personal information about yourself on the phone. It really becomes an extension of your brain. It, like, it just, if I lost my phone and all those records, You know, they're an extension of the memory in my brain. So it's very much a part of who you are uh, in that way. It also is strongly a a people connector. It's person thing person like you, your phone, and then whoever you text with or talk to or have pictures Mm. of or play games with on your phone. Mm. I've actually found in some earlier research that there's a correlation between how many friends people have and how much they love their phone. So the more friends you have, the more people it connects you to and the more you love that phone. Mm. And then the third is they are now often anthropomorphic because you speak to them and they speak back to you. So many people tell Siri, Siri, I love you, that Apple has had to come up with a bunch of different responses to that. My favorite one being, oh, I bet you say that to all the Apple products.
1: (laughs) <laughs> that is amazing. So there are categories and there are certain objects we will love more because of all the you know aspects that you've talked about. Uh, but two things that you know I would request you to touch here, uh, which 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 we're kind of moving back to objects and our love, because like you said, we were not meant to love objects you know it is it is some connection with a person uh, the two ways that you mentioned mm-hmm. that is making us feel these emotions uh, or, or or love mm-hmm. so first of all is there a, an evolutionary basis to our love of objects that is one and the mm-hmm. b part what are the deep truths about the nature of love you know because like yeah. you said uh when it comes to loving people the psychology it's not exactly the same as it gets applied to objects or brands so but but it might reveal some deep truths about love so tell us more about this
0: so let's let's talk first about the evolutionary question hmm. this is a little speculative my own belief is that We did not evolve specifically to love any sort of inanimate object. You can see in the animal kingdom, one of the things that I find really interesting is how many animals have either love or something very, very close to love. There's lots of other mammals. Uh, There's one in particular that's studied a lot. It's called a vole. It's a little like hamster, gerbil-like rodent animal. And it mates for life. And its behaviors with its mate look a whole lot like human behaviors with our mates. But you might think, okay, well, that's just the behaviors, what's going on inside. So there's research where they take these voles and they put them in little brain scanners. And then they show them their little vol- love of their life mate. And the areas of the brain in the vole that become active are the exact same areas that if you take a person and put them in a brain scanner and show them their mate, you'll get the same internal brain response from a person. So I think that's very good evidence that these animals really are experiencing love. And then there's other animals like birds that don't have the same brain physiology that humans do. So there's got to be some larger differences there, but their behavior is so much like ours. It's, It's amazing when they court the male gets so excited he can't sleep. He brings her gifts, he does dances for her and performs for her and stares at her and can't think about anything else or doesn't seem to be, just becomes totally obsessed. and It's just a lot of these same behaviors. So there is a 100% correlation in the animal world between animals that have what biologists call bonding, is the, the animal version of love, the animals that bond with their children, and animals that feed and protect their children. Because we, of course, we know that a lot of animals like, like fish may lay a lot of eggs and fertilize them, but they don't raise or protect the, the children that come out of that. But other animals do raise their and protect their children. And it's only in those cases where uh, there is that parental protection of the kids that you have also this kind of bonding between the parent and the child. And similarly, it's only in species where the two parents cooperate together to raise the children. One might bring food to the other, et cetera, that you have this bonding between the mates. So it's really clear what this bonding is about. It's getting the parents to feed and protect and take care of the the offspring and it getting the parents to feed and protect and take care of and work together collaboratively with each other. Uh, and the things we love don't really play a, a role directly in that uh, you know, at all. They're not going to carry on our genes the way our offspring will. However, there is an evolutionary reason why we love things, and that is that we evolved to love people and our brain is so set up to do that that some of that spills over onto things and we end up loving the things as well so that's part of of, of sort of the evolutionary question did we evolve you know to love things um we evolved to love people Mm -hmm. it's kind of an accident i think that we also love things in my view it's a happy accident because as i said before Loving things is great most of the time. Sometimes people get into trouble with it. 99% of the time, it's a really good thing. And if you can surround yourself with objects that you love and people that you love, and you spend time doing activities that you love, you're going to have a life full of love. And that's a good thing. Yeah. Let me, let me tell you, though, you also asked, hmm. is there some deep truth that we can learn about this? And I think there is. And this blurs into certain spiritual questions so how is it that love as a psychological mechanism gets these animals to take care of and feed their offspring or take care of their mate i have a theory about this and i can't prove this but it makes a lot of sense to me and that is that before love evolved animals were already feeding and taking care of themselves. And so when evolution comes along, it works by random mutations. And so it's much, much more likely that things evolve because they make an adjustment to something that already exists rather than evolving by inventing, not inventing, but randomly generating some huge new thing that's very complicated that somehow works all by itself. That's very unlikely. So there was this thing that already existed, and that was uh, animals taking care of themselves. All love has to happen is to shift that. So the animal now says, well, just as I take care of myself, this other, my offspring or my mate, I'm going to include them in my own sense of self. And now that I include them in my own sense of self, I will feed and protect and take care of them as well as I do for myself flash forward to the present day, psychologists, without ever thinking from an evolutionary perspective, discovered that what underlies love is exactly this process that when we fall in love with a person, we include that person in our own sense of self, not a hundred percent. If it was hundred percent, if you loved your spouse, you would never feel like, "Oh, I'm doing more of the chores than they are." Uh, and we do feel that way sometimes. Not with my spouse, of course, but you know, I've heard, I've heard that, that people can feel that way sometimes. Uh, yet there is a tremendous amount of sort of altruism that occurs in love. And I think it occurs very naturally through this process of expanding your sense of identity to include the other person or the thing, the brand or the object that you love as well, included your sense of identity.
1: <laughs> awesome. And um, Aaron, if you, if you did uh, crystal ball gazing, and, 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 and you've written about this, I think that future technology will create even greater levels of emotional attachment between people and things. Why do you say that? And, and do you think it has an implication?
0: So at the core of love, as I explained regarding the evolutionary theory of mind, uh, and also very well supported by research, at least presently, that when people love a person or a thing, they're blurring the boundaries between their own identity and that thing. They're t- seeing it as a part of their own self, uh, which is why if you love something and, and somebody insults it, you get personally offended. Right? Mm-hmm. If you think about it, like someone can insult the moon and you're like, well, I'm not offended. Why would I be offended? I'm not the moon. But if mm-hmm. somebody insults your car, if you love your car, then you are offended because you feel like you have been insulted. Mm -hmm. With uh, that in mind, one of the thing that everyone, regardless of culture, sees as part of themselves is their body. Our body is like the first thing that every developing infant comes to be like, okay, that object is me. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason that that object is us is that we have a special connection to our body. I can think, I can move my hand just by thinking about moving my hand, and that's not true for other objects. And if something touches my hand, I can feel it directly, and that's also not true. So you have this two-way sense of being able to control it outwardly, and then it sends information back to you. Mm -hmm. Future technology is already here in sort of very basic ways. You can put electrodes and and various types of monitors on someone's head. And you can scan their brain activity. And using that, they can control an object. Now, it's not very good yet. Uh, To get it to be really even mediocre good, you have to drill past their skull and put the sensors either between the brain and the skull or actually in the brain. That's a little off-putting for people. Uh but if you're willing to do that and they do this for medical reasons, for people who have very serious medical issues, you can, the person can have a moderate level of control over some object just with their brain. This is going to get very much better very quickly. And it won't be too long, I'm sure, um, within your lifetime that, people will be able to input data into like their cell phone just by thinking about it and retrieve data just by thinking about it, or they'll be able to drive a car just by thinking about where they want it to go. In the same way, when you're walking down the street, you don't think now I'm going to turn right. Your body just, if you know the way you know where you're going, your body just does that automatically. You'll be able to control a car in the same automatic way as you're driving. We will come to see these objects as extensions of our body mm. and as a result, as deeply connected to who we are mm. and as a result of that, as things we love, because love is grounded in the sense that something is part of your identity.
1: Mm. Amazing, isn't it? This is this is so beautiful. Dimensions of love colors of love, spectrum of love <laughs> and and, yeah. and and love itself is so complex. So amazing. Yeah. And as you were talking about uh, categories, Aaron, I couldn't help thinking that how important it is to, although it could vary by people, life stages, uh, cultures, but the relationship a category has with human beings at a very basic mm-hmm. level it's so important to understand that before we start trying to create brand love, you know mm-hmm. that the category truth, like they say that, that the underlying wave that you're going to ride when you're going to do branding, it becomes mm-hmm. so important to understand that um, in terms of how human beings are relating to it. Perhaps it's easier to love certain categories than others you know and... right
0: I, I and that's a that's a very interesting point as well in general it is easier for people to love categories of products that are the old term is high involvement products you think about them a lot you you, you make pay a lot of attention to them uh, it is easier for people to love products and brands that are frequent parts of their life. One of the things I found in my research that surprised me is just how powerful frequent interactions are in terms of generating love, so long as there's a positive experience. If you have frequent interactions with something and it's annoying, that is not going to create love. But if it's a positive experience um, and you enjoy the process, And then you also think it's benefiting you. So if it's something that's bad for you, like smoking, like I enjoy smoking a cigarette, but it's bad for me, that's not love either. But if you enjoy it and you think it's good for you, so it loves you too, it's benefiting you, then the frequency of interaction becomes uh, very powerful. So that different categories differ in that way. I once heard an interesting story from a colleague that... I don't have evidence to prove this yet, but it was really surprising to me and changed the way I thought. So previously I would have said a category like, this is, this is a product He's in South America. I'd forget which country in South America this occurred, but it's a bag of cement that people buy in a home, like a hardware store, And they bring it home and mix it up themselves and use it for simple home repairs, like fixing a crack in their cement driveway. They want to do that themselves. I could not think of a product less lovable than Mm -hmm. a bag of cement. That just sounds like the most unlovable thing in the world. However, this company created this brilliant ad campaign where they connected their brand of cement Mm -hmm. to people's patriotic identities. That this is, you know, for us here in this country, this is one thing that binds us all together. We use this cement. And they did it in a way where the execution was fabulous. It was fun. It was heartwarming. It was attention-getting. And people came to love that cement. So what this opens the possibility in my mind is that Yeah, some categories like cell phones and cars and maybe high-end electronics, things like this and and fashion. Yeah, lots of people are going to love that stuff and it's it's a very natural fit there. But other kinds of products, you have the advantage that nobody else in your category is trying. If you if you know this is the only bag of cement that tried to get people to love it. Like, and so you have this open field in front of you. And it suggests, and I also have some data working on this as well, that for for people to buy your brand due to love, they don't need to love it the way they love Apple. They just need to love it more than they love the competition. Mm-hmm. So if the competition is all, you know, on a scale of one to ten, if the competition is all a one, if you can be a three, you can really distinguish yourself. Even if people would say, well, it's not love until it gets to an eight. That's probably true, but there are certain underlying psychological phenomena that are occurring to a greater or lesser extent all the way from 10 to one. Mm-hmm. And if you can boost those, even though if the person wouldn't necessarily say, yeah, I love this, if you can just boost those underlying psychological phenomenon from a one to a three, you're going to beat the brands that are still stuck at a one.
1: Mm. Wow. Isn't that uh, so insightful because, I mean, you understand a human being and its humanity and you can work around categories. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I really enjoy about this topic is, as you've said, on the one hand, it is super practical for marketing. On the other hand, it's not just good for your business. It's not like having to eat your spinach all the time, as they say in America. It's it's good for your business, but it's also really interesting and fun to think about. Mm-hmm. And when you understand why people love products or brands or other objects or places or what have you, you get to understand love. And one of the things that I find most rewarding is I've read in many reviews of my book, if I you go to Amazon, you'll see the reviews up there. Lots of people say, you know, I started this book just thinking I was going to learn something about why consumers do something. And I came out of it with a better connection to the people in my life.
1: What's more powerful than love, Aaron? Isn't that the most powerful force?
0: Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> and, and we say that we say that with sort of an optimistic bent. But if you think in terms of evolution, people will often say, you know, love is, uh, excuse me, evolution is about self-preservation, right? Evolution leads animals to, to want to be self-interested. And that's true. But if you have an animal and it lives to a ripe old age, but it does not reproduce, From an evolutionary perspective, it is a complete failure. Um, And that will not be selected for evolutionarily. If you have an animal that has children and sacrifices so much for its children that it dies, but its children go on to live and have children, that is an evolutionary success and that will go forward. And so evolution's power leads animals, some animals, because animals have different ways of reproducing and different strategies, but leaves some animals, especially people and some others, to have extremely strong concern about the people that they love. Mm -hmm. And so if you say, what is more powerful than love, there's not much, there's not much Mm -hmm. from an evolutionary perspective that you could think of that would be more motivating than protecting uh, the people or in, for animals, the other
1: animals that you love. Wow, so great. But in that way, now you have to talk about music as well. So w- what is the role music plays? Why do we love music so much?
0: Yeah, I, I'm a big music lover and it's it's been a big part of my life and music, has a lot of qualities uh, that lead people to really love music. One, again, is the person, thing, person, the people connectors, that music connects us to other people. And one of the ways it does that, when people meet a stranger and they start to become friends, they sort of click, one of the things that happens is that their bodies literally synchronize. So their breathing synchronizes with each other's. Their pupil dilation in their eyes synchronizes with each other's. And brain waves they found actually start to, to synchronize the brain waves between these two people. If you can enhance this, if you can get people to have a synchronized experience, they'll bond with each other more tightly. This is why in the army soldiers do a lot of marching in unison because this creates a lot of bonding through a synchronized shared experience. Music does this as well. You start to listen to a song and it gets very uptempo and you're really liking it. You and the other people you're listening to, your body, your physiological experience increases in tempo with the music. Mm-hmm. And so you have this shared synchronized experience, especially if you're dancing with someone, mm-hmm. it creates it even more. And so music has a great way of connecting and bonding Uh, people to each other. Music also becomes a big part of our identity. I think some of the reason is that when you're starting to form your own adult individual identity, so you're a teenager, you can't afford, you know, you can't afford a car. You don't have a job. You go to school, but what you study in school is determined by everybody else. So music is one of the things that you can choose what you love and say, this is me, right? And you have choice about that and other people will know about it. So it becomes a way that people create an identity for themselves. Um, Mm -hmm. And also by having the same loved music as your friends, you create a group identity with your friends. And then as you get older, it becomes a part of your, your self story, like your diary, Where you store a lot of your sense of identity is through, you store it in this music that you've loved at various points in your life. So it has a lot of connection to your identity uh, in that way. Uh, As a result, music is is very powerful in terms of something that many, many people love. It's one of the most commonly mentioned things. When I I make it just an open question and don't ask about brands or products, just say, is there anything you love? Music uh, is one of the most common things that people talk about
1: wow and no wonder it's it's part of that a cultural identity it's part of a national identity it's part of family rituals mm-hmm. my god this is this is again another rich territory oh my god ah <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is a surprise. When you said I had a little surprise,
1: I thought, what could this be? So I'll be uh-huh. shooting some questions at you. You cannot think and you cannot elaborate. Otherwise, I'll have to shoot you. Okay. Yes. Deal. Okay. I, I,
0: I this is dangerous.
1: So you're ready. Quick.
0: Ready, quick, to go.
1: quick. Okay. Mother's best advice.
0: Work hard,
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, alternate profession could have been cook. Okay, as for your wife, your most often used phrase, honey, that's perfect. Hey, 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 nice. Uh, a book you'd like to gift to all your friends, and it can't be your own book, it can't be my own book. Um, you know, one of my Favorite books, uh,
0: All the King's Men by Robert Penn Warren. It, it I read it in college. I still think about it. it. It's so beautiful.
1: Okay. What would you tell your 18-year-old self?
0: Listen to other people and try to understand their experience more. Your favorite childhood memory? Being with a group of friends in... One of theirs, at you know, upstairs with a stereo playing a Beatles album, Help, over and over again and pretending to be the Beatles, air guitar and
1: air singing uh,
0: along with this album.
1: Awesome. Okay. So nicely uh, described, like painted the image. Okay. What is your greatest joy?
0: Being with friends at a great dinner party, when you just get that feeling of, I think the Dutch have this word for it, um, which I'm, hege, I think they say, this, this feeling of camaraderie and just sort of love permeating the room mm.
1: uh, through all the people. Oh. Aaron, I'd request you to share your online addresses, emails, anything you say about, uh, anything you want to say about your book. And all this will be part of show notes as well.
0: Very good. So the book is called The Things We Love, How Our Passions Connect Us and Make Us Who We Are. If you want uh, to see a little bit about my work, I've got a website, I actually have two websites. (laughs) Uh, If you're interested in the marketing side of things, go to Brand Love Central. And that is a work in progress. Um, It's up, but it's a work in progress. And that will be, when it gets done, a real central repository for information about Brand Love, not just for me, but from other people who work in this area. It's not that yet, but by the time you hear this podcast, maybe it'll be starting to move in that direction. Um, I have another website called thethingswelove.com, which is more fun and, and less about the business side of things and more about enjoying the things that we love. And my last name is pretty unusual. It's Ahuvia, A-H-U-V-I-A. It would be Huvia to remember, Ahuvia. A friend of mine gave that one to me. Yes. Uh, and if you look up Aaron Ahuvia online, you'll find tons of stuff about brand love and how to contact me. And I would be happy to answer questions that people have. Uh, I've also got a blog called Peace, Love, and Happiness and Marketing through Psychology Today. Uh, I can help you subscribe to that blog if you're interested. This is Aaron Ahuvia, author of The Things We Love, urging you to listen to Jagged with Jothravi. It is a very insightful podcast that I've had the distinct pleasure of being on. Really interesting, penetrating questions. I've really enjoyed it, and I think you'll benefit from it too. Please give her a listen and follow her on all her many social media outlets.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) That's that's so nice of you. Thank you so much.